welcome everyone to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Today we have a very special episode for you, our 2020 interview with Marie Castro, who was a child growing up in Saipan in 1937 during the Japanese occupation, something she didn't forget. Years after the war had ended and freedom had come to Saipan, she began hearing stories about a white woman pilot who had been kept captive by the Japanese on Saipan in 1937. She wanted to know more and was driven to gather all the eyewitness accounts from those people she knew on Saipan who had witnessed the presence of Earhart and Noonan in Japanese captivity on Saipan and record it for posterity, which she did. And once people felt free to talk, a process which took years, there were many who knew quite a bit. I need to provide the background of the Earhart story as it relates to Japan and their island of Saipan. The U.S. Navy's official stance is that Amelia Earhart's Electra crashed in the Pacific on July 2, 1937, while en route to Howland Island. Despite the largest search ever ordered, not a single scrap of evidence was ever found to support this conclusion. I've made no bones about the fact here that I and many others, like Mike Campbell, who inspired this interview, believe that Amelia Earhart and her co-pilot Fred Noonan were forced to land their plane on a shallow reef on Atoll in the Marshall Islands on July 2, 1937, ending their dreams of circumnavigating the world. Please note that my strongly held beliefs regarding Earhart and Noonan's having agreed to take some type of aerial photography for purposes which benefited naval intelligence are not based upon proven fact, but instead upon research and reason indicating motive and opportunity which did exist at that time in large measure. That first week of July 1937 was the week during which the Empire of Japan, with dreams of dominating much of the Pacific, and having already signed a secret pact with Adolf Hitler, attacked mainland China, raping and slaughtering tens of thousands of innocent Chinese in their quest to steal the wealth and resources of China, which they succeeded in doing, before adding much of Southeast Asia to their list of conquests. Having been preparing for war for over a year, Japan was busy then in 1937, fortifying the islands in the Pacific, islands for which they had signed a mandate that prevented any building of fortifications. Ignoring that, they were building seaplane bases, fortifying islands with networks of tunnels, digging concrete bunkers, building airstrips, and clearing out harbors for warships. And they were trying to keep all of this secret as they planned a surprise attack on the United States Naval Force at Pearl Harbor, which would take place on December 7th, 1941. When Earhart and Noonan diverted from their flight path to snap pictures of these fortifications and airstrips, which they had no doubt volunteered to do at the behest of then-President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the U.S. Navy, which desperately needed intelligence from that corner of the world, then-Secretary of State Henry Morgenthau entered all this information in his files, which Roosevelt ordered sealed, and the true story of how Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan risked their lives to get those photos and then survived the downing of their plane, only to be captured and treated as spies by the Japanese, and later executed by the Japanese on Saipan, has been covered up and lost to history. It remains covered up in order to preserve the detente with Japan and to protect FDR's legacy, as his inability to rescue them remains a black mark on his record, as well as do the poor U.S. intelligence capabilities at that time, which were practically non-existent in the Pacific in 1937, despite the huge Japanese pre-war buildup. 
FDR was no doubt embarrassed that a U.S. spy had been uncovered. He had no options, and it looks like he washed his hands of it and left her and Noonan to hang out to dry. On July 2, 1937, Earhart and Noonan downed their plane, which had either run out of gas or been forced down, on Mealy Atoll in the Marshall Islands, hundreds of miles northwest of their stated checkpoint destination, Howland Island. From the time their plane landed on the reef, there were witnesses who in later years, once freed from fear of what the Japanese would do to them if they talked, spoke freely and truthfully about the white man and woman they had seen in Japanese captivity, from the Marshalls to Kwajalein and from Kwajalein to Garapan Prison in Saipan. Last year we interviewed Earhart author and researcher Mike Campbell, who has been a tireless advocate for bringing the truth of the Earhart story to the public consciousness. Mike has suggested that I put all of you in touch via a Skype interview with Marie Castro. Mike has been working with Marie to raise funds for an Earhart Memorial Monument on Saipan, but they've run into headwinds on that project. Those headwinds created by the passage of time, as well as the historical revisionism which has been taking place in Saipan culture over the past 75 years. Very few seem to remember the past very well, but Marie is an exception. She has written an autobiography titled, Without a Penny in My Pocket, My Bittersweet Memories Before and After World War II, which chronicles her life on Saipan before, during, and after those war years, and tells the truth about what being a native Chamorro and living on Saipan under Japanese occupation was really like. She also offers up strong evidence that she gathered from the locals about their witnessing both Earhart and Noonan in Japanese captivity on Saipan in 1937. And she wrote about it in detail to preserve what she had been told for the sake of preserving the truth. Marie, it's absolutely great to have you with us today. Thank you for all you have done to try to bring the truth about Amelia Earhart to light. Thank you, Jeff. You're, you're very welcome. Can you start by telling us what life was like for you as a young girl growing up on Saipan in the 30s? I grew up as a child in a loving, close-knit family. It was a peaceful life. However, that all changed when I started Japanese school. It was sad to talk about the uh, days in Japanese time, but uh, I have to say that it was like a punishment for me attending the Japanese school. I was scared because uh, for a little infraction, the children were punished. And uh, one example, I will uh, just say, uh, when I was in uh, the early, early years in my schooling in the Japanese school, we were studying the uh, uh, origami, and one of my friends next to me uh, asked me for direction, and the teacher uh, uh, caught her talking, and the teacher called her in front of the class and snipped all her eyelashes. Since then, I was really scared. Uh, I did not like to go to school. And uh, later, I got sick that my father had to ask for, from the doctor for dispensation to stay away of, 
from school because I develop asthmatic. Mm. But uh, you came from a large family, the, right? Ten kids. Yes, my parents were Pedro de Leon Castro and Virginia Camacho Castro. Um, I came from a family of ten children. My oldest sister Rosalia was born in 1926 and died in 1980. Four other siblings died in early childhood. Between 1927 and 1933, when I was born, my brother Augustine next to me died in 2012. And four of us living today, Francisco, Pedro, Rita, and myself. Now you lived in Garapan until uh, about 1942, all right? And that was when the Japanese regime gave orders from all the Chamorros and Carolinians to move out so that their military and civilians could occupy your homes. Did you have to give up your home? Yes. Uh, we were told to leave the house uh, for the Japanese civilians and the uh, military so they can occupy our homes. We did not take anything, not even furniture. We only took our personal items. And we live on the farm until... Uh, the invasion. Did you, did you or your brothers or sisters ever see a white lady on Saipan in 1937? I know you were very young, but did you actually see a white lady there, and would that have made a pretty big stir? I, I did not see the, the lady, but Josephine Blanco uh, was 11 years old at that time, and she was the one who saw the lady, the um, uh, uh, American woman pilot, and several other people saw the the lady. But I interviewed uh, one of the lady who was living next door from the uh, hotel where Amelia Earhart was detained. Uh, her name is Matilde. I interviewed Matilde in 1983 about Amelia Earhart. It was a, a social gathering, and Matilde was sitting all by herself, so I came over and asked her about the uh, American lady pilot. Matilde told me, quote, in Japanese time, None of the houses had running water, including the hotels. So Emilia Earhart used the toilet outside and stopped at my house to talk to someone. My mother was from Guam and knew English. Amelia spoke to her, but nobody knew what their conversation was about, end quote. That's, that is amazing. I'm going, to, I'm going to back up a little bit and ask you, we're going to get back to some of the other uh, people that you were able to put together uh, when you did uh, return in 1983. But first I'm going to ask you what you remember about the American invasion. I remember the American invasion very well. <clears throat> it was the morning of June 15 uh, when a, a Japanese neighbor came early in the morning at 4 o'clock 
calling my father, quote, Pedro, Pedro, woke up because the Americans invaded Saipan on the southwestern side of the island. Take your family and go hide in a safe location. Pretty soon, the planes were flying so low, dropping bombs everywhere. We could not go anywhere because the planes were above our location in Marty. So then my father told us to climb down to an empty water tank. As we huddled together, my mother began to pray the rosary out loud. Mm. That had to have been a very, very scary time. <laughs> yes, I remember my, uh, we didn't know where to go during uh, uh, the bombardment, but my father remembered one of the uh, Japanese general who told him uh, where to go when the Americans invade Saipan. And my father remembered that place, and we went over there and lived in that cave for 23 days until we were liberated by the Americans. That Japanese general, to me, did not look like Japanese. He looked like an American. And he told my father that he, the Americans will win the war. And he gave my father a bag of money, and he said, Pedro, uh, let's go and bury this money. And when the Americans win the war, all this money will be yours. And is that what happened? Was your, was your dad able to uh, recover the money? Uh, my father went, but he couldn't locate because the, the land was really destroyed. Yes. So we, he never uh, recovered the money. We'll return to our story right after this message from our sponsors. And now back to our story. When did you first begin to realize who Amelia Earhart was and what inspired you to begin collecting accounts from those people who witnessed her presence on Saipan? After we were liberated by the Americans, we were transported to Camp Susupe, where the Chamorros and Carolinians lived in tents. It's then probably held like two or three families. And there, all the uh, conversations were about living in the case and uh, about those who knew about the American flyers. Yeah. I did not realize who Amelia Earhart was until I read the book, The Search for Earhart by Fred Garner. I was fascinated about reading about Saipan and the names mentioned in the book. That was when I became interested in collecting accounts from uh, people about Amelia Earhart. Now, at, at one point, you left Saipan and came to America. How old were you when you uh, did that, and why did you come to America? I came to America in uh, 1966. I became a nun, and uh, I was professed a nun in 1954. Then I left the convent 
1971, I wanted to give my service to this country for liberating us under the Japanese regime. I plan to teach in school uh, because I thought that's the place where I can uh, give my service more. So I first taught at an emotionally disturbed institution for about a year and a half. Later, I applied at the Kansas City School District and taught there for 25 years until I retired in 1989. It was hard teaching during the desegregation in 1970s. However, my commitment to thank the American Marines was deep in my heart. Each day that I face my student in my class uh, and look at every one of them reminded me of the Marines uh, during the war fighting the furious battle on Saipan in 1944. Yeah, that was a, that was a terrible, terrible fight. Um, we lost a lot of Marines and Army on Saipan. And your, yeah. your dedication, your, your, your wanting to help and give your service to the USA and, and to thank them is heartwarming and it's, uh, it's appreciated. You met and interviewed a number of Chamorro people who had direct experience as witnesses of Earhart on Saipan, so I'm finally getting back to that. Tell us a little bit about that. Many of our elders saw Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan on Saipan in days, weeks, and months following their arrival here in the summer of 1937. We cannot continue to deny and ignore the unimaginable sacrifice and suffering they endured under the Japanese regime. Now, you had an aunt, uh, Sister Remedios, and how did she help? My aunt, Sister Remedios, did not know about Amelia Earhart, um, but from hearsay, uh, living in Chalancanoa one day, Sister Remedios and I uh, went to the neighborhood and stopped at Matilda's house where she was raking outdoors. Both had interesting, long conversation about the American woman pilot. And that's when you had a chance to talk to Matilda. That was in 1983, and that's when uh, you asked her to tell her, you about the American lady pilot who lived next door from her house at the hotel called the Kobayashi Ryokan. Am I saying that right? Kobayashi, yes. Uh, I interviewed Matilda in 1983 about Amelia Earhart. It was at a social gathering, and Matilda was sitting by herself, so I went over and asked her to tell me about the American lady pilot who lived next door from her house at the hotel called Kobayashi Royal Can Hotel. Matilda said, quote, In Japanese time, none of the houses had running water including the hotels. So Emilia Erhard used the toilet outside and stopped at my house to talk to someone. My mother was from Guam and knew English. Amelia spoke to her, but nobody knew what their conversation was about, end quote. Now she had a sister named Consolacion, am I saying that right? Consolacion. But uh, that was 
Mathilde's sister, Consolation was uh, 15 years old in 1937. Mathilde said, quote, Consolation was a student with the Mercedarian sisters. One day she was studying her geography lesson. One day she was studying her geography lesson. And as usual, Amelia stopped at the house. Consolation was doing her homework. The American woman sat next to Consolation. She took the pencil from my sister's hand, drew the line where the Marianas was located on the map. At another visit, Consolation and I offered the lady breadfruit. She took it very little and tasted it. My my <laughs> guess was that she probably had a guard with her. I would imagine that they didn't let Amelia go anywhere without someone escorting her. And also, I'm sure she didn't want to risk the lives of any of the locals by asking them for help in any way. I think she was guarded, but I don't know whether, uh, you know, we never know uh, when the guard is away, then she goes down to use the, the toilet as an excuse. We don't know about that. But also during the uh, conversation with Matilde, she also told me that she received a little diary titled Aviator that contained dates and numbers. Uh, unfortunately, Matilde lost the diary during the war. And there was, an, there was another story of a ring, right? Yes. Um, Amelia seemed to have more contacts with the young girl, Consolacion, by helping her with her homework. Matilda told me, quote, in one of Amelia's visits, she gave Consolacion a ring with a white stone set in a crown mounting. Unfortunately, my sister was wounded during the war, and before she died in 1944, she gave me the ring and wore it until after the war, end quote. Now, I know that, ring, I know that years, ring has been searched for, right, but it's just never turned up. Yes, they were uh, searching for the ring, but it was a few years uh, later, Trinidad, one of the nieces, was given the ring. I knew that, and I, I wanted to look for Trinidad to find out about the ring. I went there one summer in 2003 before she died, and I learned that she had a stroke. She had a little difficulty talking, so I asked her, do you remember the ring your Aunt Matilda gave you? What did the ring look like and what happened to it? Trinidad, the niece began by saying, quote, Yes, I remember the ring my aunt gave me. The ring had a white stone set in a crown mounting. It did not sit well on my finger. Sadly, I lost it around the house, end quote. That was... Uh, the end of the ring. Uh, they couldn't find the ring. Uh, so 
the ring probably is still here in Saipan, but mm. nobody knew. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, it's amazing yeah. that, you know, um, I know, she, I doubt very many people had cameras during that, during 1937 either. Is that correct? It's just a shame that nothing did survive from uh, her captivity there that could have, that could have proved uh, without a doubt that uh, the Japanese had her and Noonan there. At least nothing. At least nothing survived yeah. that was ever uh, brought to us. From from what I understand, when the Marines blew a safe in Garapan, uh, they found a, a briefcase that had a lot of uh, Amelia Earhart's. I think it was her stamp collection, which she had been given uh, for that plane trip, and uh, visas and some other things, and that that was handed over to intelligence. And there were guys who uh, signed affidavits as to that story. So what was found uh, went to intelligence and uh, never went beyond that. Joaquin Seaman, what can you tell me about him? Joaquin Seaman was married to my cousin, Marie, Maria Komatsu Cabrera. Joaquin was a truck driver during the Japanese administration who also saw the American woman who wore a man's outfit with short blonde hair. One evening, Joaquin and his friend visited us. He told my parents about the American woman pilot who wore a man's outfit. Back then in Saipan, a woman never wore a man's outfit. A woman wore a dress. That was our culture. How about Jose Sedeo Tomokani? Yes, Jose Sadao Tomokane was a Japanese himself who came to Saipan as an agricultural instructor according to his youngest son, Mitch Tomokane. Mr. Tomokane died in 1965 on Saipan. I interviewed Mitch in 2018 when he was already suffering from a bad heart problem. He told me that his father stayed on Saipan, got married to Dolores Cepeda. They raised their family on Saipan. Mr. Tomokani uh, told his wife one day the reason why uh, he came late. He said, quote, I attended the cremation of the American woman pilot. It is a top secret, end quote. Mrs. Tomokani and Mrs. Rufina Sirages were neighbors during the Japanese time. They often visited with one another. The young daughter of Mrs. Rufina Sirages heard the conversation of the cremation of American woman pilot. These two wives were the only individual who knew secretly about the cremation of Emilia Earhart through Mr. Tomokane. Had not been for young Dolores who heard the conversation of the two wives, we would have never known about Mr. Tomokane's experience that day. And another individual who heard about Emilia's being cremated was uh, David and Sablon. Is there a story behind him? Uh, David uh, 
told us one afternoon here at the house, he's my brother-in-law, and he told us that he was probably about six or seven years old, and uh, he saw the the plane was being disembarked there at the uh, Gallatin uh, uh, dock and was taken over to the airport over to Aslito. Mm-hmm. That's what he told us. <clears throat> and that fits perfectly with the uh, story that we got from Army Army Intelligence, I believe it was, who actually, uh, although the area had been cordoned off, he actually saw the plane being burnt. Maybe a day or two after we had captured Aslito Airfield, he saw the uh, Earhart's Electra being taxied, uh, or at least pulled out of a hangar there. It was burned and then bulldozed under the macadam there at uh, at Aslito Airfield. So that uh, that ties in perfectly with that uh, account. And I know that the people who follow Amelia Earhart and this story, and I know it's all circumstantial evidence, but there were dozens of people, both American military and uh, Chamorro natives of Saipan, who have provided throughout the years, and the, and the years are the years are going by. Their time. Time is ceaseless, and it tends to hide all things. But there have been so many dozens of people who have come forward with information about uh, Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. Uh, it is, it's amazing that uh, more hasn't been turned up. There have been conflicting accounts of the deaths of Fred Noonan and, Am- and Amelia Earhart on Saipan. What, what are these conflicting accounts, and what do you believe happened to them? And I know that you believe that uh, Amelia Earhart was very likely cremated. What do you believe about what happened to Fred Noonan? Nobody knew whatever happened to Fred Noonan after the Japanese authority took Fred Noonan in a vehicle and drove away. That was the end of Fred Noonan. We did not hear anything about uh, him after that. But Amelia Earhart was not executed. She was detained at the Kobayashi Royokan Hotel until she died of dysentery. Her body, I believe, was not buried, but cremated. Those people who come out with uh, <clears throat> the story saying that her body was cremated, you know, during the Japanese time, uh, white people here in in Saipan, if you have a light skin or looks like European, you will be executed. Mm-hmm. And probably people saw pe- uh, white uh, people being executed and they thought that that was Emilia Earhart. Right. But uh, according to the story, I believe uh, uh, deeply that Emilia Earhart w- uh, was. Uh, at the hotel Kobayashi until she died of dysentery. She, her body was not uh, buried, but cremated according to Mr. Jose Tomokani, who attended the cremation of the American woman pilot. Do you believe that the United States' presence on Saipan as they were helping to rebuild after the war purposely ignored, or at least did not investigate or encourage any reports of Earhart uh, being on Saipan? 
No, it was not common knowledge. Only those who saw Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan believed for certain the presence of the two flyers on Saipan. Is there anything else you'd like to share? This It's a fantastic a story, and you have lived in a, an amazing life. I want to thank you, and I know our listeners want to thank you for the work that you have done trying to bring together all the circumstantial evidence that you possibly can through all these interviews and through the book that you wrote. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with us today? Yes, uh, John, I would like to thank you for your great and excellent program in Reaching for the Truth. Thank you. I would also like to take this occasion to thank a special person, the ultimate truth seeker and the champion of truth, Mike Campbell. Had it not been for his support, I would not have continued this long, difficult project. Saipan has an obligation to recognize and give every human being the honor they deserve although it was impossible to do such a thing under the Japanese regime. 83 years and counting is far too long for the flyers who made their final days on Saipan, so it be honored. My dear friends in the United States and our people of Saipan, the Amelia Earhart Memorial Monument Organization wish to extend our sincere gratitude and appreciation in supporting this significant worthy cause to recognize and acknowledge the truth and the great sacrifice Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan endured during their captivity under the hands of the Japanese. Let us join and support this project with your generous donation by building a memorial monument on Saipan in honor of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan. Thank you. Thank you, Marie. How do people uh, find the website, or how do the people give a donation? I am the president of the uh, Amelia Earhart organization, and uh, you can... Uh, send the uh, donation to uh, Emilia Earhart Memorial Monument, P.O. Box 500213, Saipan, N.P.M. like in mother, P.L. as in Paul, uh, zip code 96950. Uh, send it under the care of Marie S. Castro. Marie S. Castro, C-A-S-T-R-O. Uh, do you mind uh, sending me the email? Uh, and uh, Because some of the people here would like uh, to listen to your uh, interviews of the story you have been uh, about Emilia Earhart. Uh, um, maybe you can eat. Well, my my uh, podcasts would, my podcasts are heard worldwide in every country. All you need is internet. All you need is internet to listen to our podcast. It's called One Thousand One Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. And if all and if you've oh. never and if you've never heard a podcast, 
All you have to do is Google or search, depending on how you search things on the internet, search 1001 Heroes Podcast, and you'll find all of our episodes uh, on Amelia Earhart. All you have to do is once you get in there, just search for Earhart episodes. And our interviews with Mike Campbell uh, are there. My uh, two-part show on Amelia Earhart is there. And my interview with you now will be there in just a, a week or two. You know, what, you're, what you are trying to do, and with Mike's help, to, to build a memorial on Saipan, I very much also want to do here in the United States. I believe that she and Fred Noonan were heroes. I believe that they were on a, a photographic mission to try and help uh, our naval intelligence uh, in the Marshall Islands, that they that their plane was given the extra capacity uh, to be able to fly there, and that they were either either ran out of gas or were forced down uh, on that reef at Atoll, and that uh, they gave their lives to try and help the U.S. to find out more about what the Japanese was up to, and they were up to quite a lot. And I think I think a lot of people forget or don't know that Japan was on a war footing in 1937. We, we tend to think, well, they didn't attack us till 1941, four years later. But the truth is, that very week that Japan picked up Noonan and Earhart, that was the same week that Japan attacked China. They were on a war footing, 100%. And, and I'm sure that they, treated, uh, that they decided to treat Earhart and Noonan as spies. And I think it's very embarrassing to United States intelligence that uh, either we didn't know or didn't act upon information indicating that they'd been picked up. So they need a memorial here in the U.S. as well. They need to be recognized for what, for what they did and, the, and what they sacrificed. And they've just been buried in history with the Navy's official statement that, well, they were lost at sea. I, I don't think anybody who, is, who has studied this story of Earhart and Noonan in any depth can believe that with the type of search that they launched for them, that they couldn't be found. Uh, and there were, there were post-loss transmissions that they made while they were sitting on that reef that were received in different parts of the world, uh, radio transmissions. There was, there's all kinds of circumstantial evidence from witnesses who saw them from the moment they landed on Mili Etal in the Marshalls until they uh, went to Saipan. There's just so much circumstantial evidence that it's impossible to ignore. And yet uh, our, uh, our United States intelligence has just buried the files. But with, with efforts, efforts from you and efforts from people like Mike Campbell, I think we'll get there someday. Yes, John, uh, during the Japanese time, those people who saw and knew about the, uh, the lady pilot and Fred Noonan, they couldn't say anything because... You will be followed. You will be a suspect, and you, uh, your life will be in, be in jeopardy. So people are scared to say anything about uh, the flyers. It was a top secret during the Japanese time here. And uh, even after the war, uh, people hesitate talking about what they knew about the American woman pilot, but then they began to be uh, secure under the Americans, and that's when we began to learn what really happened about the two flyers here on Saipan. 
Thank you, Marie. Uh, thank you so much. And I know I've, I've had to have worn you out here. This is a long interview. You've held up beautifully. <laughs> and I just want to thank you so much for all your efforts and for your participation today. It's been wonderful meeting you this way uh, on Skype. And uh, I wish you the very best going forward and the best of luck in uh, trying to get that memorial up and going. Thank you, John. I hope we get more support for the uh, uh, memorial monument here in Saipan. Uh, people are beginning to uh, be to accept the, uh, the story because some people still don't believe. But I plan to go to high schools and uh, talk about the story of Amelia Earhart uh, because it happened here on Saipan, but this young generation don't know anything about what happened in 1937. Mm -hmm. And this is my mission. I, uh, as soon as this COVID-19 passed away, I will go to schools and talk to the young people about the story of Amelia Earhart. And I would like also that the Americans, uh, our friends, who uh, are supporting this will continue to support us so that eventually we will build the memorial monument for Emilia Earhart here in Saipan. We already have the, uh, all the pictures, the story of Emilia Earhart. I had, I had it in the museum here on Saipan. And uh, we celebrated the birthday of Amelia Earhart in July uh, this year and last year. And uh, it was on TV also. A-E-M-M-I? Uh, we encourage all of our listeners, if you would like to please uh, donate to this Earhart monument to be built in Saipan, uh, you can make the check out to A-E-M-M-I in care of Marie S. Castro. It's P.O. Box 500213, Saipan, M.P., Zip 96950, folks. So if you get a chance, please help out with that uh, Monument Commission. I know they would love to have your support and help. This podcast is heard worldwide. So anybody who cares about this and cares about uh, uh, Earhart and Noonan's memory, uh, and what they sacrificed, uh, those donations would be appreciated. Thank you, everybody. Uh, thank you, Marie, very much for being with us today. Uh, again, like I said before, it's been a pleasure meeting you and speaking with you, and thank you so much uh, for sharing with us. Thank you, John. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Take, take care. Bye. Bye.
bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.